there, there's no substitute for having a really strong political leader supporting this work, understanding the public narrative and, and pushing it forward. And I would just add that listening to the public is so important. And we know that cities and coalitions think about this, but community engagement is always the first thing that gets cut from a budget or a planning process. Hi, everyone. You've tuned in to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity in our communities. I'm John Zimmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and your ever grateful and honored host during this podcast journey. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Thursday, July 23rd, 2020. This is our 34th episode, and it features Kyle Wagenschutz and Sarah Studdard of the amazing Local Innovations Program with the People for Bikes Foundation out of Boulder, Colorado. But before we get started, I must mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors. Thank you all so very much. Later, during a brief intermission, I'll share how you too can help support our efforts to create safer, more inviting, all ages and abilities environments that promote a culture of activity. Okay, let's get this conversation with Kyle and Sarah rolling. I'm absolutely delighted to have on the Active Towns podcast, Kyle Wagenschutz and Sarah Studdard. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Oh, it's a pleasure. Happy to be here. Glad to be back in the saddle. And you both are, are still in the local innovations group. Is that correct? Yeah. That is correct. We're innovating locally. That's what we do. You're innovating locally. I really appreciate having you on. And this is a great opportunity for me to do about Turnabout because I've been on your podcast, The Bike Nerds, before. Yeah. Nice to see the, the tables turn. Yeah. I think we've had you a few times on. Uh, it was twice. I think the the first time uh, we had a, a little bit of a mishap and then uh, then we had a successful one. And then I was able to to join, I think, on that that special episode. What was that? That was the hundredth episode, right? Oh, right in New Orleans. We had the big party and you were you were there. Yeah, so technically three times, but only two of them made it to air. <laughs> right, right. We are in a little bit of a weird point in time. We're still in the midst of a pandemic, and we're also in the midst of a lot of unrest throughout many of our major cities, uh, and even smaller cities for that matter, in regards to the George Floyd murder and Black Lives Matter. And so I can't help but think, even though that's not what this podcast is about, I'm sure those themes are going to come up and because they are impacting our entire world. But what I'd like to start off with is defining what local innovations is all about. What, what is the program all about? And it's it's obviously evolved over time too. So just kind of check in with that. Yeah, maybe I'll I'll take that as the seasoned innovator locally. You know, the local innovation group at People for Bikes is, you know, maybe less than 10 years old and sort of in a 20-year-old organization. And I think what, what happens a lot with national groups is that a lot of their work tends to focus on you know, national level policy, maybe, maybe reach down to the sort of the state level, but it, it remains, you know, a hundred thousand foot in terms of its perspective, 
hoping that the what's what's happening at that level can sort of filter down locally and be enacted locally. But local innovation people for bikes is really about very deliberately and intentionally taking the relevance of the work that's happening at, at that high level and helping local communities, cities, towns actually take action based on what those policies or funding or programs um, are being created nationally. And so it's it's a really deliberate way to engage local stakeholders in assisting, educating, incentivizing, and sort of inspiring them to take action locally. And so, so Sarah and I spend a lot of our time actually building relationships with local advocates, elected officials, business groups, community leaders, neighborhood organizations on the ground uh, and helping them, you know, sort of take this, this growing suite of tools and dollars and uh, knowledge and figure out ways to make biking better right where they live. Yeah. And I know it's evolved quite a bit over the years. You can sort of draw a dotted line back to the the early, early days of like the Green Lane Project and really that concept of trying to prove that a more all ages and abilities approach to a facility makes a big difference in terms of the comfort level that people have. And then after that, it, there was the Big Jump Project. Uh, where are we at currently? What's what's kind of that evolution been been like now? I think through our work in the Green Lane Project and the Big Jump, as we've really identified that it's much bigger than focusing on one facility. So we're really beginning in our work is to have conversations with elected leadership and staff and advocates on why a full, complete mobility network should be the focus. You know, let's stop necessarily kind of building our bike lane and by like throwing, you know, spaghetti on the wall and fits and starts, but really look at it as a comprehensive holistic network that creates those complete connections at intersections to create safe, all ages places for people to ride. John, one of the lessons I think that we learned from the Green Lane Project heading into the big jump is that there's a technical and sort of detail-oriented expertise that has really grown in U.S. cities over the last decade. So where where the Green Lane Project was really asking the question, what is a protected bicycle lane? How do we design it? What's the method of installation? Like, you know, a very sort of nuts and bolts approach to building great bike networks. When we entered into our partnerships with the Big Jump and we were thinking about how do we sort of, you know, build these networks that Sarah talked about, very few cities actually needed additional technical assistance to figure out what a protected bicycle lane was. They, they knew it. Very few needed technical assistance about how to actually, you know, have construction crews go construct that or design it. There's a familiarity now with these sort of technical tools. And a lot of the conversation that's, that's happening in cities is not really about how wide of a white line should our bicycle lane be? Is it four inches or six inches or something in between? That that seems in some ways sort of a an advocacy conversation of you know a decade ago. What what's happening today is, wow, we know what we need to do. We know how to do it. We've got we've got permission at every level of government to get it done. We can pay for it. How do we actually go about the process of building popular support to actually make it happen? How do we overcome the last hurdle of 
building a positive public opinion for these changes so that our elected leaders don't get cold feet when positioned up against, you know, someone who's concerned about losing a parking spot or the roadway is going to change or something like that. And so the, the, the conversation as we sort of see it has largely become one of political communications, sort of building political support and a little less around, you know, sort of the nuts and bolts of building great places to ride bikes. Right, right. So the big jump project winded down and came to somewhat of an end, I would say. I mean, obviously the cities are still continuing to to chip away at that. And some of the 10 cities that were part of that, uh, that particular initiative hit some of their goals and then others, you know, they're, you know, basically the various uh, challenges. And, and for, for those of you who are listening, who have been following my videos over the past three to four years, you know that I've been tracking those 10 cities and, and been out on the road. In fact, I've, I've been in a little bit of having uh, Kyle and, and Sarah, uh, I, I guess I've been missing the two of you because <laughs> over the last three to four years, I've had ample opportunity to, to, to join you on uh, various events, whether it was like a, an open streets event in Tucson or uh, tagging along with a study tour with some of the folks that have been out there. Um, what are some of the learnings or, or some of the epiphanies that have come about as that big jump project has come to an end? And where are they at in terms of those next steps? I would say one of the biggest epiphanies is, you know, the best bike advocates aren't always people that ride bikes that to kind of further attach myself to Kyle's line about, you know, political messaging and communications and messaging, be it being at the framework of a lot of our work. It's that, you know, biking is viewed as a special niche activity for a small amount of people. And we know that a large amount of people of a variety of backgrounds and colors and socioeconomics, you know, are using bikes for exercise and recreation. And biking can be framed as a solution for communities with climate change, transportation issues, housing, workforce development. I mean, you, the list can really go on how biking can support a variety of you know, city changing efforts. And so, you know, we're really excited about communities that are building coalitions that aren't necessarily just mobility focused, but include kind of the larger ecosystem of the community that they're in. I'd maybe just add some additional thoughts that we've had about how the big jump sort of concluded, what what we learned from those 10 cities. And I, I think what Sarah mentioned is maybe the one of the most important aspects is that bicycling advocates can't carry this work alone. And in fact, it, it's probably a detriment to the effort if bicycling advocates are, you know, are leading it in, in some major ways. I, I think there's also some reflection on the cities themselves that are, that are really important to sort of think about. And this is not a, a condemnation of any of the cities that we worked with, but I've worked in cities, Sarah's worked in cities, we have a lot of experience partnering with cities. And one of the observations that we make is that cities tend to, as an organizational entity, always choose the easiest path. Cities are not designed to be innovative, risk-taking kind of enterprises in the same way that entrepreneurs or businesses are really designed. There, there's, there's an inherent uh, aversion to doing something that may not work out at the end of the day. And so cities 
always have this like I, I see it as sort of like this default position where it's like, well, yeah, we could really do this because it's it's be, it would be really amazing in the future. But the reality is it would be a lot. Of, we wouldn't we wouldn't ruffle any feathers if we just sort of watered it down a little bit and did this thing instead. And so trying to if, if you understand that that notion that cities sort of will always sort of trend towards, you know, the easy path. You can then sort of reposition your advocacy efforts or reposition your goals to accommodate for that that bending of the pathway you might go. And so uh, there's this example, you know, that I think about when I worked for the city of Memphis, we would go into a community. We, as all sort of city employees do, you do your due diligence before you get there. You have an idea either on paper or in your mind about what an outcome that you want to actually have happen is, whether that's a design or a community conversation, we would always say, well, here's what we want, but we we can't lead with where we think we want to go. We actually need to lead a little bit beyond that because we're, we're naturally going to have to make some compromises. We're naturally going to have to follow the ebb and flow of city government towards this easier path. And so we always started with something that was mildly more ambitious than even our, our ambitions actually sort of set up, up for. And I think that's that's just a positioning piece that, you know, that, that cities can can learn from and like, you know, think about if we know that this is the way we're going to, this is the way that our project is going to go. If we know we're going to have to make some compromises, don't start at that. Don't start at the compromise position and, and sort of work backwards from there. That, that leads into sort of the second piece about cities is that there's no more critical component to understanding whether a city will succeed or not, uh, other than looking at the political leadership that's in place there. They're, they're, they're a central linchpin to progress being made or progress being hindered in some ways. That political leadership can't always carry the weight alone. They need the support of the coalitions that Sarah mentioned, but they have the kind of influence and decision-making authority and power to derail or expedite a project in, in place. And so you, there, there's no substitute for having a really strong political leader supporting this work, understanding the public narrative and, and pushing it forward. And I would just add that listening to the public is so important. And we know that cities and coalitions think about this, but community engagement is always the first thing that gets cut from a budget or a planning process. And you know, I know that I have operated before with the assumption that because I was an expert at bike share, I knew exactly where every bike share station would should should go. And, you know, a community member like didn't know as much as me. And that just is why a lot of projects are being derailed and why, you know, the vocal folks that didn't hear about a project until it landed are calling the mayor is because they weren't included in the conversation. And so really investing money and resources and expertise into marketing projects and then having the conversations with community about those projects. Yeah. And and that, I think that really holds true with a lot of these big projects and pointing to uh, Sarah, your, your example of the bike share and the Explore bike share rollout and the, the work, the intentional work that you all did in connecting with the community and citing those those stations. And I think that makes a huge amount of difference. And that brings us to today, because 
to get to your point, Kyle, is that cities aren't usually risk takers and, and they're, they're very, very slow and methodical about how they're going. And it's, it's built into the name of your initiatives or your, your titles of innovation. And yeah, they may not be the most innovative <laughs> of entities, of, of organizations. And then along comes the coronavirus and all of a sudden cities around the country, around the globe are having to get real creative, real fast, real innovative. What are you seeing with the cities that uh, that you're working with that are, are dealing with trying to make available more space for people? I think in some regards, John, we're seeing we're seeing sort of like the lack of experience with innovation where, you know, where if a city was sort of used to being on the the edge of development and the edge of its public process and had already established these broad coalitions of support, what we're actually seeing is a lot is a little bit of starts and fits, you know, like let's try a little bit of thing here. Oh, it's not kind of, it's not, it's not working out on this street. Let's move it over here. I, I you know, I, that's that's a part of that's a natural part of I think the evolution of a city sort of attempting to be innovative, you know I think it, here in the U.S. even what we're seeing is is a little bit of this like what I was sort of saying earlier that like that's the selection of the easy path when I think if we maybe even sort of scaled up this conversation a little bit to think about what is the innovation we're seeing in cities around the world, we could actually point to some really amazing opportunities. If we think about, you know, Berlin and Bogota, Colombia, implementing actual physical new protected bicycle infrastructure because they understand that their transit system uh, can't operate at full capacity. They went out and like, you know, put, put paint on the road. They put you know, delineator flex post on the road. They made the physical investment. Our, our tendency here in the U.S. thus far has been to put up some A-frame signs and quietly ask people to not drive down the street if they don't have to, to create sort of slow zones. Maybe we've gone so far in some cities like Seattle where we're committing to sort of car-free streets or some places that we're sort of pedestrianizing new spaces that we weren't previously going to be doing before. But our innovation here in the U.S., I, I, you know, I hate to sort of say it, has largely trended towards this easy path because it's it's very easy for a mayor in a city to say close down a residential street or or you know again sort of politely ask people not to drive down that street. Whereas some, I think some of our international counterparts have really sort of taken the challenge and said, "Wow, there's some real major transportation." you know, challenges that we're going to face now and in the future. And we've got to make some investments and some quick decisions about um, how to do that today. So I would, I would say there's definitely some leading cities on the innovation front relative to sort of their, you know, their COVID response. But I, uh, broadly speaking, the U S cities are sort of tiptoeing into that conversation. How much do you think that need or that desire or that feeling like they need to engage the community first versus, you know, in the case of Bogota, they just said, Hey, we're doing this. Boom. We're doing, and there is no community engagement. It just goes forward. I would, I would say the, the, the cities that here in the U S that have tried to be early adopters in this field have struggled to be successful because they didn't engage the community in that process. And it, it may, it potentially, you know, if we think more systematically about this, John, it might actually be an indication about general community building and coalition support more broadly speaking. If you think about places like 
Oakland or New York City, they're they're not implementing these miles of open streets blindly. They have a they have plans in place. They're they're using those plans. But it could be that maybe those plans don't have the kind of broad community support that they actually thought they actually have. And so a place like Bogota, which has, you know, has, has a tendency to be a bit more sort of democratic in terms of, you know, understanding where how its public planning process should go. Maybe is maybe they have actually built up a better base of support for those efforts before we even got to this pandemic period. And they're able to rely on those relationships because they were previously established, they were previously trusted, they were working. And I think maybe what's happened here in the US is it's really sort of exposed the fact that our base of community support isn't as strong as we thought it was. And so when we go out to do something as an emergency response to this pandemic, what we're finding is there's a lot of cracks in the support, you know, cracks in the surface of our of our support. And then we're having to sort of reverse and rethink, you know, this implementation because we didn't spend the time on the front end to really sort of build those coalitions. Yeah, through our work across the country, you know, we've had the opportunity to do surveys and focus groups. And I don't think I can think of a city whose residents like trust their local government. Right. So there's like we're operating from like a level of mistrust. And I think that's why challenges are arising. And I think, you know, this response to COVID has pointed out a variety of inequities within our world. And if you were to just apply that to public space and the amount of streetways that are, you know, just for people in cars, I think that it just, it has just amplified, I think, the problem and the struggle that our city streets have in terms of getting everyone where they want to go safely, regardless of how they decide to get there. Yeah, well said. And, you know, those challenges and those levels of distrust with our government has even been amplified and exemplified with the challenges that we we currently see out on the streets right now. And when I think of the, the protests that are happening right now, I also can't help but think, you know, because most of these protests are actually happening out on our largest public realm, which is our streets. And it, it, it makes me think of mobility justice. It makes me think of the equity issues associated with people of color feeling like they can actually occupy their streets and be able to walk or bike to meet their daily needs and get to their meaningful destinations. What are you guys hearing you know, from that standpoint with the cities that you're working with? To that point, to kind of connect it a little bit back to just the crisis our world is under, you know, I think it's interesting that when there was a need for a mobility response around COVID, that the response from cities and vocal partners was open streets and car-free streets, but it wasn't necessarily direct support to essential workers or figuring out how to make transit be safe and protect drivers. I think we immediately went to a place of privilege and what we felt comfortable with as, as I think planners and like even myself, an open street sounds really great, but it's not providing like really key essential services to the people that are fighting, whether it's COVID or against police brutality and you know, systemic and structural racism. So I think it's really challenging ourselves that maybe the pretty shiny project we want to do doesn't serve and isn't equitable to our entire community. 
we return, Kyle and Sarah discuss the realities of community change and engagement in the context of the pandemic and the Black Lives Matters movement, how they've seen study tours help build coalitions and relationships. And also they provide a couple of cities they view as wonderful success stories in the works. But first, allow me this moment to pause and highlight just a few ways you can help support the Active Towns Initiative and this podcast. As a donor-backed 501c3 nonprofit, it's your generous contributions that offset the costs associated with creating this content. We're currently running an Active Towns t-shirt fundraising campaign, which concludes next week on the 28th. So don't miss out on this opportunity to get one of our limited edition Culture of Activity shirts. They're made from high-performance, moisture-wicking fabric to help keep you comfortable and dry as you stay active. Also, we have Active Towns hats from Head Sweats and microfiber neck gaiters slash face coverings from Pandana USA. These are available as special benefits to our donors. For more information, click on the links provided in the show notes or just click on the donate button at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. Okay, that's all for this break. Let's get back up to speed with our conversation with Kyle and Sarah. One of the things that happened here in Austin in the early stages of the shutdown of of the uh, pandemic was that the trails were shut down. I should back up a second. The plan was to shut it down completely and and no one would be allowed on there. And then fortunately, others intervened with the parks department to say, oh, no, no, you can't, you can't just shut down those trails, those trails, even though they're primarily recreation, they're also utilitarian in purpose. And in fact, a lot of essential workers, that's how they get to their jobs is in fact, by riding a bike and by getting to those destinations uh, it, it may be a last mile situation. Maybe they're on transit and then they jump on a bike chair or maybe they're riding the entire distance, but sort of, you know, thinking about all the unintended consequences. Oh, we need to do this because we need to control the spread of the virus. And then all of a sudden, oh, oh, that's pushing our more vulnerable users out onto roadways, which certainly have less cars right now, but you do have some motor vehicles that are actually traveling at higher velocities, higher speeds. And I think we know that cars are not the only thing that cause people harm, particularly black and brown people. You know, there's policing, there's communities not wanting certain people who look a certain way to bike or walk through their community. Um, And I think, you know, this, the protest and, you know, strength of pushing anti-racism and fighting against structural racism in the country, I think is just a really good example of like who has the right to feel safe on streets that you live in and pay taxes for. Yeah. And the overlay of, you know, a curfew that might be in place too. And yet you still have to get to you to and from your jobs. Yeah. And I, I think there's at, there's, there's layers to this, right? We could, we could probably sit here and talk for hours about and sort of peel back the layers. I think one of the most sort of insulting pieces of this sort of theory of change or, you know, sort of like seizing opportunity or taking advantage of the moment it, it ignores a couple of things. I think, you know, one is that the opportunity is really, you know, that here in the U.S. more than 100,000 people have died. You know, that's it's really disrespectful to the fact that this this virus is affecting people 
in families, in lives in a really amazing way. And if, the, if at the end of the day, we temporarily close down a street for 90 days, I don't think that's a victory. I think it's, I think it's a real insult to the real sort of hard work of transportation and mobility work that, that advocates in cities actually have to accomplish. It's, 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 it's less of a cause for celebration and I think more time for reflection. And I think, I think a lot of people, a lot of transportation advocates were calling for that reflection right prior to, you know, George Floyd being killed in, in Minneapolis. And I think, I think what that has done is really heightened uh, that conversation to, to a large extent, even, even to the point of saying, wow, you know, where we were really concerned about how people who through land use decisions, who through years of segregation, discriminatory policies have already been pushed to the fringe of our city. Uh, in response to COVID, we've already reduced transit service. We've told them that they, you know, they still have to go work their minimum wage jobs at grocery stores and at Amazon warehouses. And, you know, these are people who are, you know, serving our communities at a, at a higher risk than others. We've, but, but in, in response to all of this, we, we were painting this like very rosy picture that, you know, we can now sort of see, you know, this utopian future for transportation and mobility. And, and the reality is what, what, what I think a lot of urbanists and other sort of thinkers were, were sort of ignoring is that underlying and what, what we're seeing now underlying that is, you know, a whole system of discriminatory policies and a whole system of, of racist based policies and actions that continue to sort of oppress, you know, people even today here in the U S. And I, I think back to, um, you know, there's a, there's, there's this, there's a, there's a narrative out there, right. That, uh, you know, bicycling advocates, uh, people working in transportation shouldn't be focused on sort of the politics of race here in America. I, you know, we've, we've seen these comments, Sarah and I've gotten the emails, you know, that we should stay out of politics. We should, this is somehow some, uh, you know, sort of a political divide. And I, I think back to last summer, Sarah and I, um, had the opportunity to take a group of more leaders from Baltimore to Memphis for a study tour. We, we, we were going to sort of feature some of the community-based work happening around mobility in Memphis. And we actually started that, that trip with these 15 leaders from Baltimore at the Naf National Civil Rights Museum. Um, in downtown Memphis. And if if you haven't been there, John, if your listeners haven't been there, it should be on your, you know, it should be on your must-do list for the future. And the reason that we started the trip there is that we wanted to sort of, you know, paint for this group from Baltimore that the search for civil rights in the 1960s in America was directly linked to the restriction and movement and free access around communities of black bodies in our cities. It's largely, you can't walk through the museum and not see the buses and you can't walk through the museum and not see uh, the trolley cars and you can't walk through the museum and not see how public space was divided in different ways. And it's largely the methods by which white Southerners in the 1960s chose to segregate black bodies from public spaces was by physically, you know, drawing lines on the wall and saying, you go over here, we stay over here. And that while we've erased the lines off the walls today, those same separations still exist in our, you know, implicit in our society. And I think, you know, to 
to categorize sort of bicycling, transportation, mobility is somehow separate from this racist identity and racist sort of policies that we've created here in America is really false because I think they're they're intricately linked and we can't be successful at making biking better for everyone. We can't be successful at, you know, sort of promoting the freedom and the independence and the idea sort of like the idyllic picture of what it means to ride a bicycle in cities if we can also address, you know, sort of the underlying issues that prevent many people from from finding that same freedom. Yeah. Well said. I'm going to make sure that I have the National Civil Rights Museum link in the show notes. One of the things that I wanted to to ask you guys about was a big part of the success of creating that awareness, especially beyond the advocates and engaging members of the popular uh, of the political structure, but then also within the the larger realm of community advocates and engaging community advocates. And I'm thinking of, of like Roshan uh, Austin there in, in South Memphis was the use a strategic use of study tours. Talk a little bit about that and, and some of the, the learnings that the organization has had over the years. And then, you know, sort of how that's evolving, you know, towards the future, assuming we ever get to travel ever again. Maybe I'll go start, Sarah, and uh, let you wrap this one up. So People for Bikes has used study tours as a part of its sort of central programming for the better part of 10 years. It existed before Sarah and I got to People for Bikes. In fact, Sarah and I really sort of like became a dynamic duo because of a People for Bikes study tour back in 2015, I believe. And so, that, you know, that's, that's where the Bike Nerds podcast came from. It was all, it's sort of all because of that study tour. And so maybe I'll sort of say what, what people think study tours do. And then I'll maybe sort of say how we sort of view study tours because they're, they're, they're different. And there are lots of groups out there that do amazing work and do amazing study tours. We've been on them. We've seen them. We know people who have been on them. There, there's, they're not a, an unusual sort of tool to have in the toolbox in terms of sort of building support, showcasing new ideas, you know, bringing best practices from other places back to your city. That that all is really true. And that's superficially is what a study tour can sort of fundamentally do. We, however, we think of all of those kinds of things as secondary to gathering a group of diverse constituents from a city together for a focused conversation, networking experience, and sort of shared moment for four to five days. And I, I say that sort of like almost very simply and very plainly, we view study tours as a part of our programming as a way of bringing people together, sharing experiences, and having a conversation. I'm almost, almost agnostic to the best practices, the, the sort of the cool things that you're going to see, the destination that you're going to, all of that sort of surrounds it. But for us, the, the benefit is not in those experiences. It's not in, you know, sort of translating what might happen in another country or another city and trying to figure out how it works back home. That That's certainly there. But the underneath of that is about bringing people together. And it's the most impactful way of making change in cities is, as Sarah mentioned at the top of the show, is, you know, sort of building these coalitions. And so our strategy in this is to almost never have 
bike people on these on these study tours, right? We want to we want to have one or two. Let's let's ground the conversation in mobility and you know what's happening in the city. But we're really much more interested in having community leaders, you know, grandmothers, grandparents, uh, people who run neighborhood associations, people who run community-based development corporations like Roshan, people who are just really interested in making their neighborhood better, perhaps a business leader, perhaps, you know, a city council member, the more diverse a group of people, and, and honestly, the less they have to do with bicycling and mobility, uh, the stronger those bonds, those, those bonds become. And so we use study tours as a strategic touch point in our work to help coalesce a group of leaders before you know, the next big thing in their city has to take place. And so we we might use a study tour ahead of a very wide scale public planning process. Let's let's build a group of 12 people who are sort of in lockstep with each other, uh, both both from a personal perspective and a professional perspective, and and make sure that as we begin to go out into the community, we have a diverse group of people who are leading this effort, who are spokespeople for this effort. Let them become sort of the face of a public conversation about how to sort of plan for a better transportation future. We might even use a study tour to sort of strategically, you know, advance, you know, innovative ideas. Wow, the city, the city has a lot. They just passed a big bond and they've got some really innovative ideas about what they want to do with it. But, you know, they don't really know that they've actually built the kind of community clout they need to be ambitious with that. And so let's put together a group of individuals who can sort of be the spokespeople and build that clout for the city and encourage and be cheerleaders for the city and moving that effort forward. So I I would say, John, we're not opposed to taking a trip to Amsterdam and biking through the canals of the Netherlands. We're not opposed to you know, learning best practices, all of that, all of that is well and good. But for us, the central component for those trips is about building these coalitions and strengthening those relationships. And time and time again, what Sarah and I have seen is that those relationships build over time and they build in a way that the benefit far outweighs, you know, the minimal amount of investment made on the front end for it. And it's always a better opportunity for, for our work in that way. And while we're agnostic on the location, I think we do understand how a location can have an impression on the people we're bringing there. So, you know, we're beginning to expand our scope away from Europe and look at the global South and South America and other aspects. You know, if we're taking a majority Hispanic city to a place, we want everyone to feel comfortable. And and maybe that's not Amsterdam. So that's something we're really thinking about. And then how can we use the great opportunity we have to spend money locally in a local community? You know, why not expand our breadth um, and work across the globe in, in a new way and, you know, learn innovation as it comes from a South American perspective or an African perspective instead of just through a more Eurocentric lens? Well, and you, you mentioned it earlier, too, even a domestic uh, perspective of, of taking a crew from Baltimore into Memphis and being able to, to have that. Speak a little bit to the, the strategy of engaging people who may be on the fence locally and, and they're, you know, they're, like you said, they're, they're not bike advocates. And so maybe they're, they're not completely on board with this. Is that part of the strategy is get some people to so they get some exposure? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important to to have folks who are on the fence. And, you know, I think a really valuable strategy is 
it's matchmaking. It's, you know, is there a peer in that community that has a similar background or a similar role professionally or personally that is an advocate who potentially at one point wasn't a supporter of a mobility network? So how can we create conversations between two people who at one point were at the same opinion point and help kind of navigate a way to become off, become get off the fence and become a supporter of, of this type of work? So I've got a challenge for each of you. You're personally, you know, and professionally in, in the work that you've been doing, one success story from each of you where you're just, this is like one of the things that bubbles to the top and I'm just so excited about and proud of that group for, you know, putting this together. I'll go first. Okay. Nerd Kyle and I have the same one. I hope I was I was just thinking I hope you don't have the same one as me. I'll I'll think of a new one though. Okay. Mine would be, you know, over the last year and a half, we've worked with the city of New Orleans. And they I knew that I knew that Kyle, sorry. And they have done just a truly impressive job about taking a community-led transit, bike plan, the whole nine yards, embedded it into road work reaching neighborhoods that haven't had a city service reach them, like potentially, you know, before Hurricane Katrina, you know, really bringing authentically the community along with leadership of a fantastic Black woman mayor, Mayor Cantrell. And they also made the really strategic and equitable, and I say strategic not because it is not, it's not optic, it's just the like the right strategy is they kicked off their bike plan and their commitment to build 75 miles of their bike network over two years in you know, one of the hardest place to, places to get to in New Orleans, which is the neighborhood of Algiers, which you know, hasn't had any city services in forever. And they're you know, tying that bike plan and those bike lanes to fixing potholes and doing other well-needed roadway, you know, along with the support of the Algiers Economic Development Group. I mean, this, the story is like, it is dreamy in terms of just like the hard, hard work that New Orleans is doing to make their city really great and fun to get around. And sorry, Kyle. No, there's nothing to be sorry about. I mean, the New Orleans story is, is not complete, but is remarkable already in its first, you know, two to three chapters of the, of the the narrative that they're writing. And I, you know, it, it would be, I think, not accurate to sort of paint uh, the study tour opportunity or sort of our partnership with New Orleans as the primary factor there. I think Sarah and I are really sort of glad to have been in, to help and enable and provide support for that. But their their community based initiatives are just yielding the most positive results. And as we look on continue continue to tar- talk with and partner with New Orleans in a lot of ways, we increasingly see the fruits of those early efforts, those relationships being built continue to pay off today. And I, so if I give you my example, you know, John, I, it, I'm, I'm going to look back even further. This is, uh, and I alluded to this, but 2015, the city of Memphis actually sent uh, a dozen delegates on a people for bike study tour. So I was working for the city of Memphis at the time. Sarah was attempting to pull together a group to build, to launch bike share in Memphis. It, this this trip actually went to the Netherlands and included 
the likes of Roshan Austin, who you just had on the show, and it included our friend Dwayne Jones from Orange Mound and, you know, the leaders of a community bicycle program and leaders of a local, you know, John Paul Schaefer, who's leading in sort of community development in Memphis and sort of this really diverse group of people, only two of which were city staff, myself and, you know, a city engineer. The other people were all community-based, working directly with neighborhoods in Memphis. And as I look back on sort of my time working in Memphis and, and sort of like what has come since then and even since moving away from Memphis, I look back to that study tour, I think, as a as a pretty pivotal moment in you know changing the landscape of leadership for mobility and transportation in Memphis not necessarily i wouldn't say that memphis has fully fulfilled its potential and what it can actually do from changing infrastructure to growing ridership to making you know sort of the, the real big steps they need to make to continue to to make you know improvements to their network there but that being said it, it was a it was a moment in time in which traditional bicycling advocates, including myself, no longer were sort of, you know, had to sort of be the people pumping the fists and, you know, sort of calling people out on online in the city council. It was a moment, and you can look back now, is that several of those people joined the board of, you know, bike share that Sarah was creating and helped led sort of the equitable distribution of bikes into neighborhoods and how they were going to go about that process and selecting firms. They, they were all sort of a central component of that study tour. I look back, you know, now I sort of can look back to Memphis and I see all of those people in key leadership positions. They're, none of them are leading bike-oriented groups. None of them are, you know, bicycling advocates. You would never go in there and sort of label them as a bicycling advocate, but they're all doing amazing work in their communities, whether that's on housing, whether that's on economic development, whether that's in uh, restorative justice, you know, regardless of what they're sort of working on. But at the core of it, they're actually working also on transformative mobility projects. Because, because again, to my earlier point, the search for civil rights is actually, you know, overcoming the discriminatory behaviors of how people's bodies move in and out and through communities. And so they're, because they're intricately linked, and I, I see that study tour as, again, I, I couldn't tell you where we went on that study tour, John, or like who we talked to or like what best practice we learned back in 2015. But I can tell you that I sat down with each of those people for hours at a time over dinner, over breakfast, over lunch on bicycle rides. And we even watched, you know, the sunrise a few mornings together. And I can tell you all about all of those experiences and how that is actually leading to the transformative work happening in Memphis and not necessarily, you know, how we technically designed a bike lane. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still, and the good, good things are still happening today. And, and Roshan, when I talked with her earlier this week, we, we talked a lot about how, you know, that, that culture is still building and, and people are, you know, coming together and going out for rides and it's the normalization of going out and occupying your streets and your space. We've sort of run out of time at this point. So I'm going to ask uh, each of you, I, I always try to ask my guests to to give, you know, a little bit of advice that you would give from your perspective. It could either be, you know, to anybody who happens to be listening. It could be an advocate listening. It could just be a community member listening. But what would you have for them in terms of one really, really quick uh, bit of advice for them to if they would like to make their cities a safer, more inviting place to be able to live a healthy, active lifestyle? Listen 
to people. We, you did it again. I, I was going to say that. I, John, there's um, Miles Horton is a, a revolutionary figure in terms of, you know, the tale of civil rights in America. And, and, and Miles Horton ran the Highlander Center it's just, just outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. It's a place where Dr. King and, you know, members of the civil rights movement gathered often to sort of strategize, strategize campaigns and to understand what they were going to do. And Horton had this uh, phrase that he, that he called listening eloquently. And I, I, I first sort of encountered this notion, you know, back when I was in grad school, I was actually working with Roshan in South Memphis, leading a community led planning process and was sort of exposed to sort of the teachings and writings of Miles Horton. And, you know, this listening eloquently sort of notion is something that has stuck with me since, since then. And it's a, it's a, it's a piece of sort of my professional and personal practice that I've really sort of taken to heart. And really what it, what it means is that we're not just quiet. We're not just silent. We're not watching things happen. It's not just about sort of the active action of listening. It's about listening for what's actually being said, right? It's, it's sort of that next phase, the, 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 the next phase of sort of the intentional deliberate action of trying to understand and, and frankly, sort of empathize with the experience of others. And there's, there's no better way to engage with another person, to engage with the community, uh, except with sort of a very active amount of empathy for what's happening there. And that starts with listening, understanding, confronting how their experiences are different. And, and maybe that sounds, you know, sort of Sarah and I's perspective is maybe sort of global in scale, but practically speaking, that's how you build coalitions of supporters to help sort of create a better future. And that better future will naturally include creating great places to ride bikes. And it will naturally include improvements, you know, for our environment. It will improve sort of, you know, the, 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 that, that, will all, that, will, that will all come. But it, all, it, but it first starts with building those relationships. And you can't build relationships if you're not willing to understand uh, another person's point of view. And so listening eloquently would be my, my piece of advice. Absolutely amazing. I cannot think of a better place to end this. <laughs> Sarah, Kyle, thank you both so very, very much. I really appreciate having you here on the Active Towns podcast. And if y'all do revise and bring back the, the nerds, please let me know. I, I'll, I'll be glad to, <laughs> to really pump it up and, uh, and, and get you guys back out on the air. Thank you, John. Glad we could uh, glad we could uh, return the favor and dust off the podcast microphones. And uh, my kids have just been playing with this as like a airplane cockpit. So um, <laughs> glad glad we could put it back to use. Hey, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found this discussion with Kyle and Sarah from the Local Innovations Program at the People for Bikes Foundation an inspiration. For more information, be sure to check out the links I've provided in the show notes and visit peopleforbikes.org. Before we part ways, though, please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any suggested topics or guests. It's always so wonderful to hear from y'all. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. And as always, if you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please be sure to subscribe and rate on the listening platform of your choice and help us grow our audience by telling a friend or two. Okay, that's all for this, our 34th episode of the Active Towns Podcast. Thanks again for listening. 
please take care of yourselves and one another. And until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. <laughs>